Do you understand this? Do you understand that Jesus is your only hope to be saved? Do you understand that he is the perfect substitute? Do you get this? All right. Well, we come today to verse 5 of this marvelous book in the first chapter of Colossians. The book of Colossians, chapter 1. And we'll be reading from verse 5 to verse 8 this morning. From verse 5 to verse 8. And the word of God reads, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying just as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, a way of introduction, I want to tell you that no church that I know of in uh, Scripture that has been addressed that resembles our church more than the church of Colossae, which makes this epistle all the more relevant to us. Let me give you a few examples. This church was founded about seven years ago. Which one? Both. (laughs) The people of Colossians were relatively new Christians. It was uh, founded in a in a pagan city, and their socioeconomic status was pretty much average, not too high, not too low. They had very few members in this church that made up this church. It wasn't a, a large institutionalized church. Uh, they didn't have uh, thousands or even hundreds of members. In fact, the congregation was so small that they gathered and they constantly assembled in the house of Onesimus. So in that house, just a small house back then in those days, um, and this was where they uh, fellowshiped together, obeyed the one another commandments, they um, sang songs together and most likely studied the Word of God, the Old Testament together. They had two spiritual leaders at that time. Epaphras, we just read about him just now. He was the evangelist and most likely the one that they came to faith through. And there is Archibus as their minister. And so a relatively small, young, average socioeconomic church with two leaders. Does this sound familiar? Right? Now, that church was ferociously attacked by false teachers. And those false teachers would say to them, hey, listen, you need more special knowledge to draw near to God. You've got to be more intellectual. The more genius you are, the more uh, holy you are. You need visions and dreams to be more spiritual, to bear more fruit. 
Worshipping Christ is not enough. You've got to go an extra mile. You've got to follow extra biblical commands or go back to the Mosaic law. Keep Jesus. He's important. But get to know other angels, other beings to worship. Study worldly philosophy. Study. Get to know the trend, the fashion of this world. Surely all of these things will help you out to complete what Christ is lacking in living a healthy life. Now, all these lies were already in that pagan culture back then, and they were about to make their way and infiltrate that church. How similar are all these things to our culture today? We have now our politicians the professors of this world, the educational system by and large, and the most influential people of this age have become our false teachers. And we need to understand this. And they unanimously agreed and they're constantly drumming it into our ears by, by their actions and by their speeches and decisions. And what are they saying? They're saying Christ is not enough. Christ is not enough. Please allow me to say that as soon as we step out of this place of worship and move into this world, we are stepping into a spiritual brothel where in every turn there is that new idea that prostitutes itself and tries to communicate to us to betray Christ. Something else is able to give us a better pleasure than Jesus Christ himself. Someone or something else must complete what Jesus fails to do to his people. From, from the sexual revolution, the movement of LGBTQ to the materialistic stronghold. You know, the lie that, that says Excessive pursuit of more money, better and bigger houses make us less stressful and help us to be more happy. And needless to, to speak of the entertainment addiction. And let me be blunt and say to all of us, Baal has his altar in every street corner in his culture. And the sufficiency of Christ is ferociously attacked today, just like it was attacked back then at the time of Colossians. Well, how do we handle this? What should we do? If you were in the Apostle Paul's shoes and, and you've been in prison far removed away and you're locked away in Rome and you've heard about those heresies that were about to sabotage this small church. And they were like um, a small fish in a big ocean full of hungry sharks, false teachers, and they were hungry and they smelled blood. What would you do? Where do you begin? Well, Paul, inspired by God, of course, in this passage, he begins by lifting the church's eyes to something higher than them. 
one thing that will give them the perfect immunity against the venom of false teaching. Not five, not three, not even two things. Only one thing that would function as the bedrock, the fortress, the shield against the attack of the enemy. What is it? One word. The gospel. The gospel. In fact, Paul inserts these words smack dab in the middle of this passage. And by the way, he has all the sentences in this passage are in connection to the gospel. It's like all planets are orbiting around the sun. In fact, let's read it again and let me prove it to you. Verse 5, it says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard. Heard where? In what context they heard it? In the word of truth, the gospel. Then verse 6, which has come to you? What is it that is which has come to you? It's the gospel that has come to you. Just as in all the world, also it, it what? It is the gospel. The gospel is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as the gospel has been doing in you also since the day you heard and understood the gospel. That is the, the grace of God in truth. And just as you heard, as, as you learned it, you learned the gospel from Epaphras. So the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Why is that? Why does the apostle begin this epistle by reminding the Colossians with the gospel? What is it? What is in the gospel that can immune a small young church against the, the lies of the culture? Today we'll look at three aspects of this gospel. First, we want to look at the meaning of the gospel. Second, the hope of the gospel. And then how do we obtain this gospel and live in it? We start with the meaning. And what I mean by the meaning is just the meaning of the word gospel. We need to go back to square one and we'll keep it general, high level. We'll be more specific later. But what is the meaning of this word? We need to understand the meaning of that word so that we can understand whenever it's mentioned, that we would respond to it the way um, first century uh, Christians have responded to it. Now, what does it mean in a nutshell? Well, in Greek, it's the word euangelion. I'm sure many of you heard this word before. And uh, we come and we say, well, euangelion means good news. Well, it's true. It's good news. But, but it's... But this word being so diluted, what does it mean, good news? Like if I pass the exam, does that make it the gospel? Good news. Or uh, or uh, my dog just uh, gave birth to puppies. Is that the gospel? Good news. Is that what it means? Because we need to understand in a modern world, news has lost its significance. All you need to do in order to see news is just flick the channel, open a TV. You have Channel 7 News, Channel 9 News, 10 News, SBS. you got Skype News. There's everywhere there's news. I oh, know, but it's good news. Well, 
Again, you know, how many times do, we, do I turn on to watch a television and I say, oh, good news, uh, there was a cat was hanging off a, a tree somewhere and they managed to save the cat. Is that, is that good news? So news lost its significance because there is so much supply and high supply reduces the demand. It's not important anymore. But it wasn't a case in the ancient world. Back then, where there was no Twitter, no Facebook, no television, news was not cheap to be passed around. Back then, news was filtered, it was trimmed down, and only the most crucial breaking news was to be announced. And it required a messenger to ride a donkey or a, or a horse and he would move from marketplace to another marketplace or stands at a street corner without a mic or speakerphones and he would cry out and he would announce to everyone, Gospel! The most crucial breaking news. And it was related to the highest official, the mostly exclusive, by the way, to the emperors of that time. And it conveys something of greatest importance, and it would have the greatest impact. So the word gospel, yes, it's news, but it's news in a sense that it has positive, joyful connotation. Good news. But such a huge, important news. It would be something, an example of this would have been like this. Um, upon a reign of a new emperor, let's say, a messenger would be dispatched from the headquarters of, of Rome. And he would go from city to city, from street to street. And he would call people, would summon people to gather together. And he would cry out to those citizens and he would say, hear ye, hear ye. Um, and then he would say, I bring to you joyful breaking news. Evangelion. And the moment the word gospel is registered in, in people's minds and their eyes are wide open and now you've got their attention. And then they begin to think, well, he just said the gospel. Could it be? That, that we have a new emperor? Could it be that we won a war? Something big happened. And the messenger quite possibly would proceed and he would say to them, hey, I bring to you this joyful news. Your Lord Caesar of Rome, Nero, has ascended to the throne of his father to be your new emperor and he now reigns over all the kings all the kingdoms of the world. And that's the kind of meaning whenever your eyes land upon this word in the Bible, the gospel. And it is this word, euangelion, that always, whenever it's been spoken of, it would bring joy in the heart of people, a smile in their faces. And that gospel is now dedicated exclusively in the New Testament to whom? To Jesus Christ. Christianity is founded on that good news. You know, when those people that come um, to church and go home and they kind of like drag in their feet to obey God and they're just suffering miserably, you have not come to properly understand 
the gospel in Christian living. To Paul, the content of the gospel was so precious, so dear to him, that in Philippians 1.16, he would say that he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. Philippians 1.27, he calls us to advance the gospel and to join him in a suffering for the sake of the gospel. Let me read to you 2 Timothy 1.8. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me, join with me in a suffering for the gospel. That's the general understanding of what this actually word means. Whenever you come to that word in the scripture, you've got to pause and think, man, breaking news, something that is so marvelous out of this world that is spoken of right this moment. And Paul turned this gospel, this word, here in this epistle to be the porch, the main entrance in addressing the issues of this church. Why? Why does he do that? What is in the content of the gospel that led Paul to Front load the epistle with this word. What is it? Well, we come to the second point, the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. Verse 5, and we read the first part of it, it says, because of the hope laid up for you. You can continue reading, which you know you previously heard. And then he would say the word of truth, the gospel. The content of the gospel has enduring substance. It gives stamina to us running a race. It has in it, it possesses ingredients to help us to climb the Mount Everest of our hardest trials and greatest temptations. It compels us to strive to move forward in holy, in holy living. Uh, let, me, let me prove it to you. Last time we studied how the Apostle Paul always thanked God for this group of believers in Colossians. Whenever he thought of them, whenever he prayed for them, he always thanked God. Why? On what basis? On the basis that he was confident that they were born again, that they were saved. In verse 4, just a verse earlier, he says to them, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Meaning, you've embraced Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. He's now everything to you. Once upon a time, you hated the Lord, but now you love Him. You love Him. Now you entrusted your soul to Him. You've come under His governing Lordship. That's beautiful. And then he continues, secondly, the love which you have for all the saints. In other words, you sacrificially commit to serve all the brothers in your community. Great. That's very good. What in the world does this have to do with the gospel? He's saying to the Colossians, I know 
that you're genuinely saved. I can see the evidences of your, of your salvation. You are my true brothers now. But the question is, how did they become Christians? How? And more so, what is in the gospel that leads them to, to entrust their souls to Christ, to sacrificially grow in the love for the brothers? Again, we read verse 5. That's the connection. It says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. A hope. That's the connection between hope, faith, and love. Hope induces these virtues. Faith and love are the trademark of Christian living, right? But to cultivate them, you've got to plant them and grow them in a the soil of hope. Faith and hope spring out of, sorry, faith and love spring out of hope. Now, with that being said, well, what is hope? What does it mean to have hope? Because, again, that's another word that has been diluted, it's been adulterated in this, in this uh, world that we live in, right? You have people that name their children hope. Is that what we mean? You know? You have other people, when they speak of hope, they think of it as what? Wishful thinking, right? You say, man, I hope that we don't have a lockdown. And what do we say? I hope so. I mean, don't get me wrong, I hope so, right? But that's what we mean when we say hope. We just reduce it to some sort of wishful thinking. It may happen, it may not happen. But that's not the biblical meaning of this word. One commentator defined hope and he said this hope is looking forward with eager anticipation and listen to this and strong confidence to the sure promises of God another commentator said hope for the Christian is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result Confident expectation of guaranteed result. That is what hope is. It's kind of like this. It's like one day you look outside of the window, you look up in the sky, and somehow you notice there is that $1 million note falling out of the sky, and you checked out and you work the trajectory guaranteed it's falling and it's only just a few moments before it lands on your backyard right and so what do you do during that time you're, you're anticipating it right you're expecting it with eager expectation that is hope let's let's have a look at what Paul says also about hope. Look where it's stored. It says in verse 5 again, we still haven't moved away from that verse, laid up for you where? In your physical healings. Guaranteed. Your mortgage will be paid off. Guaranteed. Is that what it is? Don't clap. That's not right. That's not, that's not what it says. <laughs> Read the text. Laid up for you in heaven. In heaven. Do you want to genuinely grow in your unwavering faith in Christ? 
Do you want to grow in your increase, ever increase in your sacrificial love for all the saints, even when it hurts? Look up to heaven. Pay attention to what is secured, locked away, stored up in heaven for you. In other words, you can draw unspeakable strength to live a healthy life when you do what? When you meditate in your hope that is laid up in heaven for you. Well, so far so good. But if that's the case, we need to unpack this. We need to understand what is it exactly that we've got to meditate in. That is, namely, our hope. What is it? Well, let me give you some aspects of that hope. What the content of this hope is. Number one, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 tells us Jesus is our hope. There's a song that we wonderfully sang and we praise God for it. Jesus is mine. He is our hope. He is our portion. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is our hope? Well, the scripture tells us that humanity is polluted with sin, right? From the best of us to the worst of us, from the greatest to the least, from the poorest to the richest. All stand before a holy God, convicted sinners, convicted transgressors of his law. And apart from Christ, not just that we will be judged, but we are judged already as guilty criminals, condemned before a holy God. And the perfect judge declared us to be hell-deserving, hopeless sinners, and none of us could ever improve of his miserable condition on his own. That is our standing before God without Christ. But praise God for the gospel. Thank God for the euangelion. Again, it says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard. What is it that they heard? Here is the good news. Here is the breaking news of all breaking news. What is it? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the rightful emperor of the world. And he has come and lived among us as sinless man, performed miracle after miracle. And they all together bear witness that he is not like any other man. He is God in flesh. You say, well, but what happened at the end? He just died like any all other men died. No, he didn't die like all other men. He died for other men. He gave up his life voluntarily to be our sacrifice, to be our perfect substitute, bearing in his flesh our sin, our shame, in order to be punished by God for his people. But wait, there is more. It says here, Look where he is now. It says the hope laid up for you where? In heaven. What does this mean? Christ the emperor has gone to war against sin and death. He won victory for us. He overthrew the grave. And the good news is that Jesus ascended to the highest of heaven. 
This is where he is reigning right now. He rules over heaven and earth. And all those that put their trust in him, the Bible tells us, will not be put to shame. They will be saved. Well, this is the gospel. This is the breaking news. And then we narrow down and we zero on the hope which is in the gospel. What is our hope in the gospel? This same Jesus Christ who ascended to the highest of heaven promised that he's coming back again for us to bring us home. Stay with me on this one. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, in other words, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he did not ascend to the highest of heaven, nor did he promise us to come back to bring us to himself, if this did not actually happen, if he did not promise that, we are of all men most to be pitied. We are the biggest losers on the face of this planet and the entire universe. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But aren't we thankful to God that all of Jesus, with his unveiled, wonderful glory, everlasting beauty, is our hope laid up for us in heaven, and he promised that he will come quickly, that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, with a sound of trumpet, with a shout from heaven, he will rapture his own people to be with him forever. A day will come, brothers. It is guaranteed. That's why we call it hope, that he will bring us home with, a, with our resurrected bodies, physical bodies and will behold him as he is and the scripture tells us that that day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will no longer be any death there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain this is our hope jesus christ this is what is laid up in heaven for us But wait, there is more. What else is laid up in heaven for us that we can draw strength from in order to live a godly life? Another thing is eternal rewards. What we do for the Lord here on this earth will impact our eternal life. You know, when Jesus is coming back, he will not come back empty-handed. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. This is our hope. The Lord is faithful. He promised he will come with our rewards. And he said that the reward will last forever. Our Lord promised that the harder we serve from our hearts, the greater our reward will be. What else is laid up for us in heaven? What about our inheritance? 
which First Peter chapter 1 tells us is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, for us. Something that is of great value. Something that will, their value will never diminish. Something that is almost priceless. You can't put a tag on it, reserved in heaven for you. And what about the crowns of righteousness, the streets of gold? Did I mention a resurrected physical bodies? What would it be that God would, would withhold from his blood-bought children? And when we let this word of truth, the gospel, sink deep into our hearts, who in his right mind would let himself be entangled by the messed up world we live in. What madness, what insanity, if in the light of this hope, we still attach our hearts to this world. No, brothers, we, we fling away what is passing away because our hearts are filled up with this hope. And we will joyfully make any sacrifices necessary for the sake of our future hope. Because of our future hope, we will endure. We will carry our afflictions on our shoulders and the scars of Christ on our back and though tears of sufferings would fill our eyes. Brothers, one glimpse, one peak on our hope that is laid up in, in heaven for us. And it will fill our hearts with joy inexpressible, full of glory. The more we live for the Lord, the more we mortify the lust of our flesh, the more we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the brethren, we will suffer. Right? That's guaranteed. We will suffer. But the more we will suffer because of our hope in heaven, we can still say we have the better end of the bargain. Our loving Lord is coming quickly. He's coming. That's why it's the truth. The word of truth. He's coming quickly. He's not coming empty-handed. He's coming with our rewards and our glorified bodies. And we will leave behind a sin and lust. No more do we, will we ever fight against temptations. No more will we ever need pills. Right? To... Patch our broken bodies. No more dieting, you know. No carbs. Yes, protein. Yes, fat. No protein. You wouldn't have to worry about any of these things. Only real, long-lasting, physical peace, joy, delight, unhindered, unbroken fellowship with the Lord and with one another. What a scene it will be. And on that day, we will look back in time and we will say it was worth it at the end. It was worth it. And this is why. 
This word of truth will lead us to trust Christ more and to love the brethren more. This is why we're, we're called brothers to defend the gospel, to advance it, to proclaim it from the rooftop. This is why even our sanctification is rooted in this hope. So that was the second point, the hope of the gospel. Now the third. I want to introduce it by asking that question. And that may perhaps be the conclusion as well. So just keep it as that. And keep it simple. How do we obtain it? How do we appropriate this gospel? And so how do we live this gospel? How do we receive it and be partakers of it? Because if we would ever want to defend it, if we would ever want to advance the gospel or root our sanctification in the gospel, we need at least to know how to receive the gospel, right? And I say this because there's lots of misconceptions about this subject. How do we obtain the gospel? Do we sit cross-legged and on the floor and uh, like Hindus start humming hum, until somehow we, we, we receive it? Is that how it works? Or is it by feeling? You know, we live in a world that is feeling-oriented. You know, the world keeps on telling us whatever makes you feel good, do it, right? Just follow. Follow your heart, right? And even many of us somehow adapted this lingo. And, and you know, I would ask somebody, why don't you do this, such and such? And, you know, what we say. That's what we say. You know what we say? I don't feel like it. As though feeling is my dominant authoritative leader of my life, right? And when it comes to the gospel and receiving it, I fear that many people come to this point and then we ask, how do you receive the gospel? Many people say, well, or somehow convey the message that they're waiting for the zap, for the zap, because they've grown all their lives relying on their feelings, led by their feelings. And so even when they come to a gathering like this, they wait for the preacher to somehow arouse their feeling in order for them to receive the gospel. They're looking for feeling maybe more humble or, or more loving. And when they get to feel a certain level of holiness, then they say, now we're ready to receive the gospel. And in the light of this feeling would never come, they never receive the gospel. Right? I just spoke to someone last night who said to me, gospel is something that is mysterious. I don't know how to receive it because it's, it's a mysterious doctrine, understanding. And they make the gospel in their mind because they are so grounded uh, with the, in that lie of following, leading, uh, feeling to be their leader. 
that they in their mind think that the gospel is some sort of sensation that gets drawn to them when they feel that they are drawn to the gospel. And I submit to you that this is not Christianity, nor the gospel of Christianity. Please note, look carefully what, what Paul calls the gospel to be. Verse 5, the word of truth. Word meaning message of truth. Verse 6, the grace of God in truth. In other words, the gospel is certain truth. It is just simple information that is trustworthy. That's all it is. It's truthful, meaning it's genuine. It is not a lie. It's not a fib. No, it is reliable. To say that it's word of truth, it means it's authoritative. It reigns above feelings. The word of truth, it means it is authentic. Whether you believe it or not, or, 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 or feel it or not, Truth is truth. It is absolute. We measure everything against the truth of that gospel. It's truth. Certain information that is authoritative. Well, if that's true, how do we receive truth? How do we receive it? By the faculty of emotion? Obviously not. No. Again, have a look again. Verse 5, it says, of which you previously what? Felt it? No, heard it. Verse 6, since the day you heard and understood. Verse 7 says, just as you learned it from Epaphras. The gospel truth has to be received by which, which faculty? The faculty of mind. Of your mind. Ah, oh, but I thought you've got to believe it. Yes, of course. But even the scripture says, how will they believe in him or whom they have not heard? You must first hear it. You must understand it. And after you understand it, as the scripture says, you've got to learn it. And then you believe it. The gateway. To embracing the gospel is the mind, the faculty of mind. Because the gospel is not some arbitrary, subjective sensation or something. It is certain truth that you can comprehend. You can understand it. Are you willing to entrust your body and soul to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Like we said in the, in the last sermon, feeling comes later. But first, you need to engage with your mind. So with your mind, have you heard that Jesus came to earth, born of a virgin, lived perfectly sinless life, died on the cross, and the third day he rose again? Have you heard this? 
Have you heard that he ascended to the highest of heaven and now he is called Lord of Lords and King of Kings? That he rules in heaven. Have you heard this? Do you understand your sin problem before a holy God? That you cannot do anything to save yourself by yourself. Nothing outside of you, nor anything that may you think would be holy inside of you, would lead you to be saved apart from Christ. Do you understand this? Do you understand that Jesus is your only hope to be saved? Do you understand that he is the perfect substitute? Do you get this? Very well, you say, yep, I get this. Well then, in the light of you understanding this, do you believe it to be true? Do you believe this to be true? Well, you say, yes, I believe this to be true. Well, if you believe that this information to be true, are you willing to make this information to be authoritative over your life? What does that mean? Well, apart from feelings, are you willing to stop fighting with God, trying to prove that somehow there is goodness in you apart from Christ? Are you willing to stop fighting in order to assert, to affirm that there is some sense of righteousness in you? Okay, I'll, I'll stop doing that. I'll stop fighting against God. I'm, I'm going to stop trying to prove to myself that I'm good enough apart from Christ. Good. Let's continue. Are you willing for Jesus to be your savior? The savior of your body and soul. Are you willing? Not that he is, but are you willing? Not that you're living as though it is so that he would accept you, but there is willingness as though you're about to have your soul being married to him. Are you willing for him to be your Lord? The commander in chief, the boss of your life and death. Are you willing that you would abandon all in order to follow him? Yeah, but I, but I don't love him. We understand that. But the truth is truth. And the truth is he is Lord and Savior. And the matter of the fact is, the truth is, if you are willing upon believing this truth, you understood it, you believe it, and now you're willing for Jesus to be your Lord and Savior of your body and soul. He's the one that will cause you to grow in your love for him and your sanctification and your holiness and your love um, for, for his word, to understand his word, to obey his word. All of these will come later. But are you willing to commit your life to this truth of who Christ is? If yes, 
then you are saved. If this is genuinely true, you are saved and you have hope laid up in heaven for you. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is so clear. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Christ, who is the crown of the gospel. Thank you for the eternal rewards. Thank you for our inheritance. Thank you, Father, that we do not have to climb mountains, swim across oceans in order for you to accept us. But Christ did it all. He satisfied your wrath. He paid the price for our sins. And now he calls us to come to him. Though we are wicked sinners, deserving nothing else but hell, yet freely you shower us with grace of forgiveness and eternal life. I pray, Father, that your people would have that hope that is laid in heaven for them. This hope would be imprinted in their hearts. That they always look up to heaven where their rewards, where their inheritance, and mostly, and most importantly, their Lord Jesus Christ is seated. We pray, Father that we would anchor our lives upon our hope that is beyond this world. And I pray for those among us who are not yet saved, draw them to yourself, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.